electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to a special Friday afternoon edition of Tech Check. I'm Julia Borston in San Francisco. Today, the earnings deluge. Tech companies doing mostly better than feared. We'll dig into what could be the bottom for performance, but the top for stocks. Plus, a look at deal making and M&A activity and why partnership might be the new keyword in both media and tech. And the Zuckassants. MetaShares up 170% this year. Has the Zuckmentum peaked? But first, earnings, a big driver of this week's action. Let's bring in Rory O'Driscoll of Scale Venture Partners and Bradley Tusk of Tusk Ventures to break down what we heard this week and what to expect next week. Rory, thanks for being on set sure. with me today. Glad to be here. Um, I'm going to start with you. We heard so many beats this week. Microsoft, Google, Intel, Meta. Does this bode well for next week? Do you think these things are connected with what we might hear from Amazon and Apple? I think so, but perhaps in a different way. I think what was interesting about this week is, you know, the talk was all in advance about AI. The hope was all about revenue growth. And the cold reality is everyone cut costs and made their EPS, right? It wasn't a great revenue growth. It was, a de- as you, it was exactly what you described, better than feared, right? Revenue growth was, for a lot of people, flat to up single digits, but everyone nailed it on the EPS, got with the program, and the street's happy. Well, right? Meta did have 11% revenue. Meta did have 11% and guided to 20 next quarter. So that was probably the most exciting yeah. upside-y one. I would agree. What do you think, Bradley? Yeah, no, I, I agree with Rory. Um, I, clearly, even though the fundamentals are probably what companies were focusing on the most, which is how they got to the right EPS, um, nonetheless, you know, whether it's sort of hype around AI or products that are new for companies like Meta, like Threads or whatever it is, there has been enough sort of new stuff thrown into the mix combined with enough cost cutting uh, to make the math work. And talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of this CapEx cycle. I mean, it was interesting, even Meta, just to go back to Meta, which is in this year of efficiency, talking about how it is going to be continually spending more and more. How do you see that trend playing out and how do you think that'll impact what we hear from Apple next week? I mean, I don't think any of them could ever afford to stop spending that kind of CapEx because ultimately, if they're not on the cutting edge of whatever the newest thing is, and at the moment we're all talking about AI, but it was metaverse, you know, a year ago and autonomous vehicles three years ago, and it'll be something else in two years, um, you're not going to survive because they're all so big and so well capitalized and so talented. And so as a result, there's an arms race, I think, just kind of has to keep going and going and going. Apple's a little different in that by being a hardware maker, they're in a slightly different position. Um, but overall, uh, I, I don't think they're ever going to get a position to really cut CapEx. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I, I broadly agree with that. I think that the dynamics, Apple does march to its own drum. It's the beauty of being Apple. So leaving that aside, what will be interesting, for example, is what Amazon talks about in terms of CapEx, because they're competing toe-to-toe with Google and Microsoft. Microsoft upped the CapEx budget, you know, pushed another $10 billion roughly across the table and said, you know, maybe it's closer to 50 bill than 40 bill in the whole Google, in the cloud space. So it'll be interesting to see how Amazon responds to that. And 
they have less degrees of freedom than Apple. So that will be much more interesting because it's more challenging. And how much is AI and this question of whether it's a hype cycle or a fundamental shift part of this? I mean, AI is so capital intensive. Yes, and it, it, but it can be capital intensive and also fundamental. It does. I mean, there's definitely one thing we've learned over the years in venture is you have to say sometimes there's hype and it turns out to be rubbish. But then sometimes the hype and it turns out to be true. So, in fact, there's no signal in hype. We're so good at doing hype in California that you always get hype. It's like the weather. It's always sunny and it always has hype. So what's your take on where we are it's with great. AI right now? It's a long-term trend. Microsoft's brilliantly positioned. It's going to take a lot longer than people think, but it's going to be an enduring 20-year bet, and they are playing it brilliantly. It's just going to take time. And are you watching AI more as an underlying factor that's driving the B2B business and driving efficiency? Or is it more about the consumer option and this idea of open AI and the chat GPTs? I, I, I think it's both. And interestingly, I would say, you know, five or six years ago, there was a lot of AI for the consumer. People just didn't see it as such. You have, you know, recommendation engines. Google search is fundamentally AI. What's really happened in the last 12 months is the interest in AI among the business community has exploded. You know, we've been investing in various AI deals for about six or seven years, but it's just transformative right now. Every single board of directors wants to have an AI strategy. I think what happened, and it's why the two are linked, your comment on consumer, ChatGPT just normalized AI, and it made it obvious the magic. Everyone looks at that and goes, wow, that's simply amazing. I better get me some of that. That's going to change my work. Right. What, yeah, I, I'm curious what you think, Bradley. Is the AI hype priced in? Is the AI expectation priced in? Where do you see us as being in, in the hype cycle or lack of a hype cycle? Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of initially priced in and then obviously people got really excited about that and, and that drove things. But overall, the impact that it's going to have, I think, is so transformational that, you know, maybe the initial expectation has been priced in. But, you know, when you asked a question before to Rory about sort of whether it's B2C or B2B, I think the thing that people aren't really talking about yet, but that we see in our portfolio is it's not just that there are AI companies, you know, like OpenAI. It's that so almost every new company that we invest in and work with is using AI just as a fundamental tool to do their job. So, for example, we're investors in a Series A company called Elaborate. Elaborate prepares lab reports so that after you go to the doctor, rather than you trying to Google, you know, what's a good glucose level, you have a really nicely laid out, intelligent explanation of your reports for you. Now, they use AI to prepare those reports. But when we invested in Elaborate, we didn't look at it as an AI investment. We looked at it as a digital health investment. And so I think what people, everyone's excited about sort of generative AI and sort of the, the fundamental transformational changes. And that is exciting. But there's also a much deeper just AI as a tool used in every industry. Uh, and I think there's just much more to come. Yeah, we've been tackling this through a series called AI Impact. But my question is, because as we talk about how expensive those fundamental AI investments are, if that not only makes it very hard for the smaller startups to compete unless they are aligned with the tech giants, but whether or not it even makes some of the smaller public companies a more challenge when it comes to competing because they don't have the same kind of billions of dollars of investment in the AI infrastructure. I think it's a question of where you play. I mean, I don't think anyone else is going to try and spend $50 billion to replicate open AI. But I'm with Bradley. It's so all pervasive now. There's many different ways to leverage AI in your own business. And ironically, some of the competition among the big cloud providers and Facebook is resulting in significant improvements in cost effectiveness, availability of open source models. The trend is such that you can be relevant in this space for your particular whatever software market you're attacking without having to spend that kind of money. I mean, it's just as, for example, 
maybe an analogy would help. Like in the last 10 years, the public cloud has been dominated by Amazon, Google, and Microsoft. But there's hundreds of SaaS companies building on top of the public cloud and you know, creating you know, significant 10, $100 billion market cap companies out of that, right? I think it'll be the same here. You know, God bless OpenAI for building this. We'll all use it, thank you very much. It's, and it's a question of grabbing it and going, as, you say, as Bradley said, to maybe initiative in digital health, maybe initiative in you know, sales and marketing stack across the board in B2B. Yeah, we're certainly yeah. seeing AI impact all totally. these different industries. Also making headlines this week to pivot here, news that the FTC's Lena Khan is set to sue Amazon in several grounds as soon as next week, a suit that could seek a breakup of Bezos and Jazzy's trillion-dollar empire. There are so many questions here, but let me start with you. What do you think the chances are of her actually being successful in breaking up Amazon? Well, it's there's a lot of hurdles you have to jump to get to that point. And, you know, it, this was an inevitable suit. I mean, the entire theory of the case, Chairman Khan, you know, rose to prominence on a 2017 paper, basically saying Amazon should be broken up. So she gets the FTC job. In fact, one of my responses when I saw it was, haven't it already been, has it already been filed? I mean, this has been inevitable from the date she took the job because this is the big bet, right? It's a novel theory, right? So when, I, when lawyers hear novel theory, they think long time. I don't think this is going to be a, a quick and easy case to do. The FTC's record has been pretty mediocre, even on less complex cases. So I think whatever happens here, it's going to take, you know, two-thirds of an eternity. <laughs> it's going to put a lot of attorneys through very nice summer houses. Uh, you know, Amazon's not going to roll over and die on this one for a long time to come. And I think, I, I can't assess if they prevail or not, but I do know there's common agreement even among Chairman Khan, that this is a novel and new theory. Yeah. This is not like it's you know, banked to rights, it only makes sense. It's like, we're doing something totally new, I'm advocating this theory and I'll push it all the way. It's going to be a long one. I mean, this would certainly be a career-defining moment for Khan, who very much established her identity yeah. um, with these arguments about how Amazon, um, she argues, abuses its market power. I, I'm curious, Bradley, if you if you think she has a shot at this, but also perhaps more importantly, what impact um, this action from Khan would have on the rest of the market? Yeah, a few things. So one, look, I think, as Rory said, it's a novel theory, so who knows? Um, but she is, I, I found her personally to be quite impressive, and so I certainly wouldn't underestimate her um, if, if I were Amazon or anyone else. I mean, in terms of the broader impact of the market, there's two ways to look at it. And Julian, that gets back to a point you made a couple of minutes ago, which is who can compete with these companies? So I'm an early-stage investor. I invest in seed and Series A companies. And the reality is I can almost never invest in a company that tries to do what Amazon or Google or Meta or Microsoft or anyone like that does simply because they have so much market power that competing with them is just not really feasible in any way, shape or form. And so I think to me, the great concern isn't even really one of fairness. It's that, you know, we need future innovation to be seated now so that you know, the Googles and Amazons of 20, 30 years from now are being created. And there was a day where you couldn't imagine Ford or Standard Oil or General Electric not being the, the best companies in the world, but they're not. Um, and that's going to happen eventually to, to the incumbent companies as well. And so the great fear that I have and why I've been supportive of the FTC's efforts to rein in big tech um, is simply because I think that early stage investors like me need to not be so afraid to deploy capital into potential competitors to the big platforms, because if we don't invest in them and they don't get created, then here's what we know will happen. 
eventually Microsoft, Amazon, Google, like all companies get slower and stagnant and bureaucratic and less innovative and more political. And if you don't have the replacements already underway, that's a real problem for the economy. And so I think in the name of producing early stage innovation competitiveness, a lot of the FTC's work to me makes sense. But Bradley, I was just talking to a group of Disruptor 50 CEOs, and they were saying that the regulatory environment is so intense right now that even the specter of regulation could potentially hurt or kill their industry, their nascent industry, um, long before their companies can even get off the ground. And a lot of these CEOs see regulation happening earlier in the life cycle of technology. We certainly heard a lot of talk about regulating AI, perhaps because prior tech cycles such as social media were not very regulated. So do you see this this potential regulation um, by the FTC either impacting the market for, for public companies now um, or changing the potential for some of your startups to get acquired? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of that gets to specifically how the FTC messages uh, this and talks about it. I've, I've actually had this conversation with them specifically, which is, there's the underlying actions that they're taking, and the underlying action against Amazon may be right. It may be right legally. It may just be right from sort of, you know, continuing to try to promote innovation. Um, but they've got a message that, like, look, we are going after or, or have issues with these companies for these underlying reasons. We are not against technology. We are not against business. And they have to show all the ways that they're trying to help other companies be competitive. So I think, you know, they're very good at showing the stick. They're not showing enough carrot. And so I don't think there has to be a negative impact on the market. But I do think that both the FTC, DOJ and the White House need to do a much better job in how they explain it. I'd be with you, disruptors, on that, not Bradley, to be direct. I think that you don't get half intervention from the government. I'd prefer not to have, in this case, I definitely prefer not to have any because, yes, it's hard to compete with these big guys. But on the other hand, you know, constantly stopping people from, you know, acquisitions. Acquisitions is a viable alternative exit to an IPO, and I think it's just going to get a lot harder if the FTC is, con you know, there's continual pushback and acquisitions from these big tech acquirers. I mean, I remember the last downturn in 01 or 02. We were very glad to sell some companies to Microsoft at that period of time, and that may be precluded now, right? So I think that Bradley's right if they could do it in a fine-grained fashion and get the good bits right and not do the bad bits. But in general, my observation is that's not a governmental core competence. And I worry we get the lock, stock, and barrel of prohibition, regulation, and slowdown. And I prefer to skip it. We hear from a lot of these tech companies that they'd be happy to re be regulated if they could be regulated the right way. Of course, that's always the question. Yes. Um, we're going to have to leave it there. Rory, Bradley, thank you both so much for joining us today. And coming up, strike two. Hollywood studios might be pulling the trigger on key contracts with writers and sooner than expected. We'll give you the latest. That's next. We're just getting started on this Tech Tech special live from One Market in San Francisco. Tonight, Game Changer. It's a media rights arms race and the old rules don't apply. Plus, amazing meta? Zuckerberg's leg up on Elon. Explained. And it's a woman's world, the purse power that goes way beyond Barbie, when we return on CNBC. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back. Next week, we could see a major development in the writers and actors strikes in Hollywood. Variety reporting that the studios and streaming platforms are considering terminating some of their first look in overall deals with writers as soon as August 1st. That's Tuesday. These overall deals typically pay overhead for a writer or showrunner's company and then fund the development of new projects, some of which some of the most high profile recent examples include Shonda Rhimes, Ryan Murphy and Tyler Perry. These creators paid hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, if and when this happens, it would mark an escalation in the standoff in the media industry and would illustrate the studios taking an opportunity to cut costs. Now, these deals are already suspended. So studios, including Amazon, Warner Brothers and NBC Universal, are not paying these contracts right now. But if they're terminated, then a number of existing relationships will be severed and we could see a reshaping of the industry when production eventually returns. Now, speaking of media, live sports has been media's saving grace, and it's expected to become even more valuable amid a dearth of scripted content this fall, thanks to those strikes. Now, sports is the glue holding traditional TV bundles together while also driving growth for streaming services who are paying up for sports rights, such as Amazon Prime Video's NFL games. Now, Lion Tree CEO and mega dealmaker Arie Burkoff has led blockbuster deals, including Warner Media's merger with Discovery and Amazon's purchase of MGM. I sat down with him to talk about the future of sports, media, and deal making. Take a listen. Obviously, media has had a lot of uh, cross currents and. Uh, a lot of uh, you know, pressure of late, but sports is a bastion of, of, uh, of hope, uh, as, is, as is a lot of the creative industries right now, which I think is probably shifting back towards the positive side. But sports is event-driven content, and uh, not only is it uh, transaction 
uh, in nature, transactional nature, but also character driven because you have uh, a must see content in terms of the event, but also each player has its own brand. And so you have followings per, each, per player and obviously own business models and media strategies per player, which I think opens up new business models that we've seen from the Mbappes of the world uh, of late uh, to even tennis players uh, and women's sports uh, coming up uh, with a lot of tailwinds for the league and the sports franchises. So I think sports has a lot of tailwinds right now uh, that continue all across the ecosystem. But what about the fragmentation? Is it harder for sports fans to figure out what to watch where? We de- did see ratings on Amazon's Thursday Night Football decline, but at the same time, they got a much younger demographic and they do expect ratings to uh, increase in the second year of Thursday Night Football on Amazon. What does the fragmentation do to viewership and how can the leagues and media companies and tech companies make sure they're managing that? Well, everyone has a different strategy. I mean, Amazon is uh, a holistic strategy where it's prime and there are, there are transactional elements around the merchandising and they need the sports content to really draw in the audience and they are kind of getting there now uh, packages on Black Friday coming up for the NFL. Um, ESPN is a part of the traditional ecosystem now trying to transition to direct-to-consumer and having to balance the cash flow model that they have with the existing ecosystem to now transitioning to the new direct-to-consumer model and potentially needing a partnership strategy to do that with the leagues as well as the cable operators. Um, but you also have YouTube where they have an NFL strategy as well and uh, a merchandising model that's coming up uh, along the way as well. But I think the key thing is having uh, new content emerging that is getting a new audience, whether it's pickleball that we're talking about today or women's, uh, women's sports rights, which is not new content, but really getting a more parity when it comes to media rights, uh, not just women's soccer, but also the WNBA and monetizing it at different levels. So I think there's room for repositioning the traditional ecosystems with new partnership behavior the platform players in tech um, getting a, a whole vertical ecosystem in place, like Apple with MLS and so on, um, but also having the insurgent content, having tailwinds across the whole ecosystem. Now, I know you can't tell us about all the deals you're doing or in all the deals you're working on, but I know you are invested in and working on the business of pickleball, which is certainly very popular right now. And also you've done some of these media sports deals recently. Explain to us how important having both digital and traditional distribution is and how you see the hybrid of that playing into the deals you're gonna make in the future. Well, you know, people like to talk about the deals and obviously uh, there's a lot of competition for deal making and transactions and we're just part of the ecosystem. Um, But really what we look at is partnership behavior. How do you create aligned strategies for the long term that unlock value? And there are a lot of relationships that we've had that you've had for a long time in this industry. And there's pressure right now because the the ecosystem is contracted in certain areas like traditional media and getting to the other side of this equation, whether it's because of what's going on in Hollywood with the writer's strike and in uh, the competition for streaming or in in areas like platforms like ESPN, um, how do we unlock value? And so if there's not a merger per se because of regulatory activity or other things, there may be other asset sales to alleviate pressure or partnership behavior to create long-term strategies that unlock value. And you know, for us, it's just about being uh, a part of the ecosystem, paying attention, 
we are part of a partnership ourselves when it comes to investing or doing business with other banks as well. So it's really just more of an aligned ecosystem now because we're coming out of a period where there's been hyper-fragmentation and people have to start working together again. And I'm more optimistic about what the outcomes will look like versus what it feels like today. So it's so interesting because in a time where regulatory pressure is limiting the potential for mega deals like the ones you've made in the past, you've really shifted your focus towards these alliances um, and these partnerships. What does that mean for the rest of the media business, looking outside sports? We have a very fragmented media landscape, so many streaming options right now. What do you think should happen? Well, there's a lot of competition for the consumer. So we may have gone too far in direct-to-consumer, um, which means that the, we have to rebundle in certain areas to package the direct-to-consumer strategies in media. So media has to work together. Uh, if it can't merge, then maybe it has to rebundle and partnership activity together, or there's always other forms of capital uh, to do that. Uh, we're certainly open for business when it comes to mergers and uh, you know, with, with regulatory pressures as they are, uh, there are ways to get things done. But in the meantime, you still have to actually create ecosystems that are aligned. And I think there are ways to do that with the CEOs that exist today in attracting capital and attracting partnerships in um, merchandising or transaction-driven content, like you saw with the MLS deal with Adidas and Apple and attracting Messi in a way that was uh, very much uh, emblematic of way partnership models can work to create a much more balanced model. Uh, that's not merger activity, but it is emblematic of how new models can come together to create value. Now, you mentioned the strike a couple of times. We're certainly hearing a lot about the, the strikes, the actor's strike, as well as the writer's strike. When I look back at the Writers Guild strike from about 15 years ago, it really did impact the trajectory of the industry and drove the rise of reality TV. Of course, there was also a big focus on sports content at the time. How do you see these strikes impacting the industry, especially if they drag on? How do you think things will shift, whether it's the type of content that's created or the, the alliances and allegiances that are, are formed? You know, creative industries um, always are counted out every few years, whether there's pressure because of labor or strikes, um, uh, but there's always a new uh, model that emerges, whether it was DVDs before uh, or now we're looking at content shifts from what was a long-term syndication model to then a direct-to-consumer platform emerging. Now I think we're going to transaction-driven content like even merchandising we've seen with the Barbie movie from Warner Brothers and Mattel. The Mattel has now become a new IP house that not only has content but also a merchandising opportunity. It's just the beginning of that strategy. Or frankly, sports is transaction-driven content that also has characters attached to it. So I would not count out the creative industries in any way, shape, or form of being dynamic and creating new ways to grow. I think that's a better way of going than cutting everything back and taking pay cuts everywhere. I think we have to find new models to continue to grow and the creative industries are among the most creative and courageous uh, in the ecosystem. And I believe there'll be another way of growing versus just cutting back. And so I'm more optimistic that we'll find a way through this. That was an optimistic version, vision from Arya Burkhoff on the future of live sports and also alliances and partnerships as well as growth after a challenging time for the media industry. And that was at CNBC and Boardroom's inaugural Game Plan Sports Focus Summit. It was in Los Angeles earlier this week and a really fantastic one to participate in. And coming up, Applied Materials, LAM Research, On Semi, and NXP all hitting 52-week highs this week. Amid strong earnings results and positive commentary, we'll dig into the latest in the space. That's next. 
The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm so excited to be joined right now by Nilay Patel, who's editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Casey Newton, uh, editor of Platformer, both CNBC contributors and... My co-host for Code this year, September 26th, 27th. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, thanks both for being here. It's really a joy to be yeah. on set with you. Uh, such an interesting way to round out a week. It really seemed to me like the headline of the week was meta, better than expected earnings. Uh, and I'm curious what you think in terms of whether this is the start of a new phase for meta or whether this is the peak to justify the 150 or so percentage gains for the stock this year. What do you think? Look, there is a, a moment in social media right now, and they are seizing it. Between the collapse of Twitter, all of the regulatory uncertainty around TikTok, Mark Zuckerberg has seen a lane, and he is zooming down it. Yeah, I agree. The, the number that jumped out to me was that Reels is on pace to be a bigger business than TikTok. $10 billion in, in, in revenue run rate. That was yeah, the number just, that I heard. Yeah. Just incredible. Maybe not more culturally relevant than TikTok, but a better business than TikTok. And I think the market is rewarding that. And they're rewarding the idea that threads could become a bigger and better business than Twitter ever was. And they, they know how to run that business. That's not a new problem for the meta boys. They, they know what they're doing there. And I think that's a, that's a really exciting moment just like for the internet in general to have new distribution platforms. It doesn't come around very often. But what was so interesting to me about the commentary around Threads on Meta's earnings call is they said the innovation of Threads really encapsulates why we wanted to have the year of efficiency. We're slimming down, we're, we're leaner, we're faster, we're more innovative, and that's enabling us to get something like Threads off the ground with a relatively small team. Do you buy that argument? I do, because we have been watching these companies launch huge products with massive teams and go nowhere. And I would point specifically to Reality Labs at Meta, a massive project, thousands if not tens of thousands of engineers, lighting money on fire. It, it, has it changed the world? No, it's threads that's making the market go up for them. But before we dig into this yeah. Reality Labs question, which I think I'm going to put a pin in, 
My question about Threads, though, is maybe it wasn't successful because it was a leaner, faster team innovating, but it was successful because they were building off the success of Instagram. They had these billions of users already on Instagram and could very easily port them over to this new app. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think that this was a story about leanness paving the way. I think that there is a huge demand for what Twitter used to do in the marketplace, and Instagram already had built up a graph that you could sort of easily port over to a new thing. So I think if you'd had twice as many people working on threads, it would have been just as successful, but probably not much more successful. I mean, Instagram has the advantage of scale, right? It sure is. But I just, my, my belief is that there's a kernel of truth in there. You double the size of the thing. It doesn't go faster. It's not actually more efficient. It's probably noisier. It's probably slower to execute. The things they were able to do with threads, get it out in market early when they saw the rate limits hit Twitter, that's a small team. That's not a, a big team just gets in its own way. And I think Facebook is, and I think Meta is learning that lesson. But we also had the headline that came out after Meta's earnings that the number of Threads users has fallen off dramatically. Zuckerberg telling employees that it lost more than half of its users mm -hmm. since its launch. Was this just a flash in the pan, people wanting to try something new and then forgetting about it? Look, I think they, they just have a lot of work to do. This is a, pit, a pretty bare bones product that they shipped into the marketplace. It doesn't have a lot of polish. It's still missing some basic features. You can't even really use it on the desktop yet. So I think it's only natural that people bounced off it after quickly looking at it. But the real test now is how quickly can they ship those features? They have been coming out at a pretty steady clip since they launched. So over the long term, I'm still pretty optimistic. So you mentioned Twitter which maybe we should be calling X. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm curious, or we should be calling it X, uh, uh, because that's what it renamed as, as of this week. Was this a week when Elon Musk wanted the conversation to be about him and him rebranding Twitter into this X everything app? And in fact, everyone just talked about Meta and how successful their earnings were. I mean, who won the week, Musk or Zuckerberg? I think Zuckerberg has been winning a lot of these weeks, hands down. Uh, if you look at Elon, he had a bad week, right? There's a big report about Tesla range estimates being faked over time. Uh, there was a pretty chaotic rebranding of X, including an argument with the band X Japan. It's like, you just don't want to be in, a, in an argument with a world-famous Japanese rock band. Like, I don't <laughs> think that that's where the CEO of Tesla should be in his life. Uh, and then you just look at how messy the X product is in general all the time, getting messier. Uh, at this point, the full Barbie and Oppenheimer movies have like been uploaded. You can watch all of Super Mario Brothers on the X platform in a pirate stream. That's why the user minutes are going up. And I just think that there's something there that he doesn't have a handle on. And trying to get attention is what he's good at, and that's what he's doing. I, I think there might be more than one things he doesn't have a handle on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what is X? This is what I'm trying to figure out. It's an everything I, app. I defer to Casey. It's, it's an the, everything it's, app. It's the future state of interactivity is what I think uh, Linda Yaccarina said. Um, look, I, Elon Musk has, since the 90s, wanted to build some kind of super app that involved both payments, messaging, with the new product. It's apparently going to have audio and video. What does any of that mean? We know he's gutted the staff. We know a lot of people are hanging on just for the health insurance or for visa reasons. What are the odds that he's actually going to be able to get any of this out the door? Right now, it seems pretty slim to me. So Linda Yaccarino, who you mentioned, brought in to, to manage this company, to run it, and also to reassure advertisers. She was down in L.A. this week meeting with folks in Hollywood to reassure them about this platform. We are going to be talking to her at the Code Conference in September. I'll be very curious to see how much this platform changes before then. Um, but I wonder what you think is happening in terms of where she's taking the company versus what Musk's vision is for this broader company that's 
much more diversified than what Twitter has been. I mean, my understanding is that she is really focused on the advertising business. That was the main reason that she was brought in, is that's where her uh, her, her talents lie. Um, the rest of it is going to fall to the chief technical officer, Elon Musk. I think I'm interested, though, to see how closely are those two really going to be able to work together to ship products. AI is going to be a big focus of the conversation at Code. It, there's no doubt that AI is a revolutionary innovation, particularly generative, generative AI impacting all these different industries. Listening to Mark Zuckerberg talk about some of these practical uses of AI, but also this open source Llama program and the fact that they're partnering with Microsoft. Do you see Meta being a real player in these AI wars that we see Google and Microsoft engaging in already? I think they're very much shaking things up with Llama 2. That's a very high quality model, was incredibly expensive to train, and now you can just go use it uh, for a lot of things basically for free, unless you have 700 million users a month, so sorry Snapchat. <laughs> but it really, I think, is going to empower a lot of businesses to play around stuff, try stuff. I will say though, I'm still not totally clear how this makes money for Meta in the long run. Yeah, so first, just as a lawyer nerd, it is not actually open source. They're, they just keep saying it, but like you the actual become, open yeah. source foundations are like, that's not true. And I think that's just, that's, open AI is not actually open. The AI world is just littered with people saying <laughs> things are open when they're not. I think it makes money for Meta because they have this partnership with Microsoft. And the idea is that you're gonna run everything on Microsoft's cloud services. Open AI is restricted to Microsoft's cloud services. I think this model will be preferred to run on those cloud services. And over time, as uses, grow, maybe there's like a revenue sharing agreement. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, the thing that the Googles and the OpenAIs are worried about are these open source models. There's a very famous memo from inside of Google, controversial, saying we have no moat in AI because eventually people are going to run this on their MacBooks. And I think that's the move Meta's making now. You mentioned how AI is the real thing and the metaverse failed to take off, or, or Threads is the, the thing that's working and the metaverse failed to take off. But Meta is investing so much money into the metaverse as we see funds like Sequoia shift resources away from things like crypto into AI, with this increasing focus on AI, what is that at the expense of? Do we see Meta eventually say, we're not going to be spending as much on a reality labs division because we've got to divert some of those resources over to AI? I mean, I think the good news for Meta this quarter was that their revenue grew quickly enough where that just started to feel like a less pressing question. I think earlier this year, it did seem like, yes, maybe we're going to have to, I don't know, shut down Reality Labs if we want to go all in on AI. But now things are, are looking like they're going to be able to keep investing. And keep in mind, Mark Zuckerberg wants nothing more than a platform to call his own. He wants to own the next generation of hardware, whatever it might be. So I think he's going to be extremely reluctant to give up on that, even if it shows very slow growth for years. And he's got proof of that, too, right? Apple rolled out app tracking transparency. That destroyed Meta's business for a minute. This is the quarter where they're back, right? Where their AI yeah. efforts actually figured out how to target ads in a way that was as, effect as effective as before. I don't think he wants to run that game again when Apple comes out with the Vision Pro. So I think he's got a, a good reason to stay hedged against Apple, particularly with, with headsets. I don't know if headsets are the next iPhone. I don't know if it's that size of business, but he sees that Apple's in his market and he needs to stay hedged against it. And the metaverse? The metaverse? What happens with the metaverse? 
I don't know. Okay, see what happens with the metaverse. Is the metaverse is having a bad year. <laughs> it's, it's having a bad year though because like the the hardware is bad. Yeah. And yeah. the question is, well, when will the hardware be good? It might be five years from now. If that's true, we will spend five years saying this metaverse thing is not taking off. I I am still long term optimistic that you can make a cool computer to put on my face. But again, it might not be before twenty twenty eight. Yeah. I think I, it's I think it's a hard call to put something on something. Historically, the only things that have gone on faces are glasses, yeah. which have enormously high utility. <laughs> They're very useful. Nothing is as useful as glasses, and you will note most things are not on faces. <laughs> so we will end it there. Thank you both so much for joining us. I'm so excited to continue these conversations about AI and all of these other disruptive technologies at the Code Conference. It's coming up September 26th and 27th. I can't wait to co-host it with both of you. It's going to be great. We'll be back with more coming up right after the break. Coming up, the future is female. A consumer thesis with no X chromosome. And steering the chip of state. The semis got a big gift from the U.S. Senate. We unwrap it tonight on CNBC. Welcome back. Chip stocks have been on the move this week amid better than feared earnings from companies including Intel and Lamb Research and numbers that suggest PC sales may be recovering. Last night, the Senate overwhelmingly passing a bill that includes a major provision that would expedite regulatory approval for chip facilities. Our own Emily Wilkins has the latest. Emily? Hey, Julia. Well, yes, chip companies looking to build facilities in the U.S. got a huge win last night after the Senate approved an expedited permitting process. Congress allocated $52 billion last year to make more semiconductors in America, but the new money came with a catch. Companies would also need to undergo an in-depth environmental review process that could delay construction for more than two years. Senator Mark Kelly, whose state of Arizona will be home to new chip fabrication plants, said the proposal would cut through the red tape to prevent delays in manufacturing, while requiring companies to follow clean air and water laws. To avoid the longer permitting process, companies must break ground by next winter, or have received a federal loan rather than a grant, or have less than 10 percent of the project covered by federal funds. The bill also allows the Commerce Secretary to offer specific companies exemptions. The measure passed as a part of a larger defense policy bill, but it still has hurdles to clear. The House passed their own defense policy bill last week, and now the two sides will need to negotiate a single bill. And Julia, Senator Kelly said he's hopeful the final bill will contain the streamlined review for chip manufacturers. Back to you. Thanks so much, Emily. Fascinating report. And as we head to break, take a look at this quarter's earnings scorecard. We've officially reached the halfway point in this earnings season with 254 companies having already reported. We'll take a look at this week's top tech results and what's to come. That's next. We're now officially halfway through earnings season. 93% of the tech companies that have reported topping estimates. To recap some of the results, Live Nation sales skyrocketed amid a year of strong concert demand. It posted a major jump in revenue and said it expects record ticket sales this year. But shares fell sharply today on a report that the DOJ could file an antitrust suit as soon as this fall, claiming the Ticketmaster parent is abusing its power over the live music industry. No comment from either the DOJ 
Day or Live Nation. Roku soaring more than 30 percent today as it says ad verticals are beginning to improve. It reported a much smaller than expected loss on a big revenue beat, though it did warn of challenges through the back half of the year, especially around what it calls a muted TV advertising market. And T-Mobile is up slightly after posting mixed second quarter results, revenue just shy of estimates, though profits came in ahead of expectations. The carrier adding 760,000 phone net subscribers and 509,000 high-speed internet customers. On deck for next week, SoFi for a read on fintech, a ride-sharing update from Uber, and Airbnb on the state of travel. Coming up, what do Taylor Swift, Beyonce, Greta Gerwig, and the economy have in common? We'll tell you that's coming up next. Welcome back. The Barbie movie continuing to top the box office this week. It's expected to rake in nearly three quarters of a billion dollars in ticket sales by Sunday. Now, big money went into making the movie such a big success. Warner Brothers reportedly putting $150 million behind the movie's marketing. This all showing Hollywood how a movie made by women for women can perform. Now, Barbie saw the biggest opening weekend ever for a female director, yet this is rare. Only about a third of the top 100 grossing films in 2022 were led by a female protagonist. And in some ways, though, 2023 has been the year of big events targeting the female consumer. We have Taylor Swift's Eras Tour, Beyonce's Renaissance Tour, and Barbie. They are all proof that women and girls are a prominent part of the economy and can and should be catered to. Let's bring in Monique Woodard, founder and managing director of Cake Ventures. For more, Monique, thanks so much for being with me here today. Thanks for having me. So, Monique, you're very interested and focused on this female consumer, and you completed a white paper really researching the buying potential. Tell us about why you wanted to do this white paper and what the findings were. I did. I wrote a white paper called Finding Alpha, the Trillion Dollar Female Economy. And the goal was really to give the economic case for investing in companies where a female consumer is driving these companies to billion dollar plus outcomes. I think we've talked a lot about um, we've talked a lot about female founders and female entrepreneurship, but we haven't focused on the female consumer. And I think, you know, Barbie and Taylor Swift and Beyonce, these are just these cultural touchstone moments that really show what's, hap- what's been happening for a very long time. So what does this mean for you as an investor? I mean, you're a 15-year veteran of the startup world here in San Francisco, um, but now you're an investor putting, putting your LP's dollars to work in the startup ecosystem. What are the specific companies, but also the categories? Categories where you see big potential right now? Well, Cake Ventures is focused on demographic changes that are changing technology, and the increase in female spending power is one of those major demographic changes that is happening. I mean, you look at um, the $4 billion valuation for a company like Skims or the recent IPO of the Ilmakaj um, parent company, Oddity, um, which raised $2 billion in their recent IPO. These are the companies that are out there, and of course you see it in fashion and beauty and retail, but you also see it in healthcare. Women are the biggest consumers of healthcare that we've seen. So it's not just uh, fashion, beauty, retail. It's all of these other categories as well. And so how much do you think the female consumer has been overlooked and how much of that now creates an investing opportunity for you, but also opportunities for investors in the public markets as some of these larger companies, um, whether it's, you know, the Mattel's and Warner Brothers Discovery of the World or consumer products start to cater more directly to the buying power of these women? 
So every few years, we do have these little inflection points, right, where a Barbie movie comes out or a girls' trip movie comes out, and people suddenly remember that women have money. Um, but my hope is that it becomes a more consistent uh, focus on female consumers. And I think that is really, honestly, the way to generate alpha, alpha returns in venture capital. So tell us a little bit about some of your other focuses. You mentioned demographic change. I think it's notable that it's not just about women. What are the other key demographic areas you're focused on? So first layer of the cake, Ventures Cake, is aging and longevity, 10,000 people turning 65 every single day in this country. Um, third layer of the cake is rise of a new majority where people of color broadly become the majority in the United States and are already a global majority. Um, Gen Z is also really interesting. The future of non-white collar, non-office work is also a really interesting demographic shift. So, you know, new technologies like AI and LLM are really important. But what happens when the technology meets the consumer? That's really what I'm excited about. It's so funny that this idea that people could overlook a demographic for in terms of women, that's half the population, and by many estimates generates 80% um, of all buying power. We just saw the headline that there were so many people at the Taylor Swift concert in, San, in Seattle that it actually registered as an earthquake of a 2.3 magnitude that, because there were so many people there and so much excitement for this, this female superstar. Um, looking into the next couple of years, do you think that we are going to see um, a realization of the, the buying power and more money shift either from investments from in the, in the private landscape or in the public markets into this demo? And are there any companies in particular that you're watching right now? If investors are smart, yes, you will. Um, I'm also okay with them continuing to be a little bit dumb. <laughs> that gives me more opportunity. But I think, you know, the areas where I'm really excited are um, things like the future of non-white collar work, women over-index in categories like healthcare jobs, retail jobs, service jobs, and what AI and LLM will do to those jobs, yeah. um, certainly improving them, potentially accelerating some, mm -hmm. some areas of those. So many categories. potential uh, opportunities here with the demographic shifts in the Woodard, thank you so much for joining me here today. This has been a special episode of Tech Check, and now I'm going to pass it over to Last Call. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.